Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me for a few moments as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that Jesus must be understood in his Jewish environment. Jesus was a Jew who himself stated that salvation is from the Jews. The gospel of the kingdom is itself a very Jewish idea based on the Hebrew prophets. The time was coming when God would himself establish a kingdom on this earth with the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem on the throne of David. That throne of David was promised to the Messiah. And the Messiah was the promised seed, the seed of the covenant made with Abraham. You remember that Abraham was promised the land, which in the New Testament is the kingdom. And in order to rule that land, one needed a king. And so there was to be the distinguished progeny of Abraham and the son of David, who would be the king of that kingdom, known in Jewish circles as the Christ or the Messiah. In the early chapters of John, we find the apostles saying, We have found the Messiah, the one of whom Moses spoke. He was the son of Abraham and the son of David, the distinguished descendant of Abraham and David, destined one day to rule the world, because that's what Messiah is supposed to do. If you want a job description of Messiah, it is that he is God's appointed king, God's representative, God's agent, God's ambassador, destined to bring mankind to a state of harmony, and the restoration of paradise on this earth. It was about that promised descendant of David, the Messiah, that Gabriel the angel spoke when he announced to Mary in advance of the birth of Jesus that she would conceive in her womb supernaturally under the influence of Holy Spirit. And because of that miracle that God wrought in the womb of Mary, her famous progeny would be called the Son of God. It was because of the supernatural conception in Mary's womb that that son of Mary was indeed also the son of God. God was his father because God had begotten him in the womb of Mary, his mother. That's the reason why Jesus is called the son of God. Gabriel said nothing at all about some pre-existing son, one who had always existed as the son of God. That's a much later development in the history of ideas. It doesn't belong within the canon of Scripture. And therefore it's confusing for Bible readers to think always in terms of what the church councils taught in the fourth century when they read the Bible. It's most important to distinguish what comes directly from the pages of Scripture and what in fact is tradition of the church added later. As many historians of Christianity recognize, the faith underwent a significant change when in post-biblical times it launched out into the stormy seas of the Gentile world, there were all sorts of competing philosophies around, and principally the philosophy of Plato. Neoplatonism was hanging in the air, and it easily got mixed with the faith. The result of that wedding of two opposing fields of thought, the Hebrew-Jewish thought of Jesus and the apostles, and the pagan philosophy of the Greeks, The result of that mixing is that we have had handed down to us numerous traditions which reflect that mixture of Greek and Hebrew thinking rather than the pure Hebrew thinking of the Bible. Jesus, you see, was a Jew. The writers of Scripture were Jews, with the probable exception of Luke, who wrote, incidentally, 
about a quarter of our New Testament when you combine the work of Luke in his Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. I have been pointing out that Paul, when he wrote his epistles, represented the original faith as Jesus taught it. Paul knew nothing about God the Son. He knew much about the Son of God, the Messiah. And so in the first verse of his letter to the Ephesians, we read this, Paul, an apostle of Messiah Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Messiah Jesus. To be in Messiah Jesus or in Christ Jesus simply means to be united to him, to be part of his body, to be sharing his mind, to be making a relationship with Christ by seeing things as he sees it, by sharing the very mind and the thought of Christ, which is displayed in his famous teaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God and all that that means. All of these are assumptions that Paul brings to bear in these letters. He doesn't have to explain that Messiah is the Son of God. He didn't have to explain that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. All that had been laid down as a basis when he first encountered the Gentile pagan people whom he'd converted to the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. In verse 2 he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Messiah. These are the two principal personalities in the great biblical drama, the one God of Israel, the Father of Jesus, God the Father, and then the Lord Messiah. And I pointed out in a previous program that it's from Luke 2, verse 11, that we derive this famous expression, the Lord Messiah. It was the angels who announced to the shepherds that there would be born that day in the city of David one who would be called the Lord Christ, the Lord Messiah. Not, I point out, the Lord God, but the Lord Christ. And so here in Ephesians 1 verse 2, Jesus is called the Lord Christ, who is Jesus. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ or Messiah. That's his full title. He's the Lord Christ, based on that original text in Luke 2 verse 11, and of course on the whole messianic idea as foreseen in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. In verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Now, it's interesting that God is still the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you realize that Jesus has a God, even the risen Christ here? Because you remember that Paul wrote these letters after Jesus has been taken to the right hand of the Father, after he's been immortalized by resurrection, after he has ascended to the Father, Jesus still has a God, and that God is God the Father. Paul refers to God the Father as both the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it must stand to reason that somebody who has a God is subordinate to that God. Jesus, therefore, from this text, is subordinate to the Father. These are not co-equal personalities, as sometimes maintained. The Son is subordinate to the Father. You remember that in the Gospels, Jesus said he didn't know the time or the day of the second coming. If he didn't know, he wasn't God in the sense that God knows everything. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, we find that the risen Christ is given a revelation by God his Father. Now, an omniscient person, someone who knows everything, 
doesn't need a revelation. But in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, we find God the Father giving to his risen Son a revelation, giving him information, telling him information he didn't know, revealing his plan, revealing God's plan to his Son. That must prove, I think, to any unprejudiced reader that the Son is not co-equal or equal in knowledge and understanding with the Father. The Father still has to give him a revelation. Revelation 1 and verse 1. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians in this way, because God has blessed us Christians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Now heavenly places would be somewhat equivalent to spiritual things or messianic things, things having to do with the great kingdom to come. All of these blessings are found only in union with Messiah, as believing the things that Messiah believed, as responding to his gospel teaching of the kingdom, and so on. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on to say, Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so that, as he goes on to say, we should be holy, that's to say, like God, because God is holy, and blameless before him in love. Did you notice that God has chosen the Christian people before the foundation of the world? That means that God intended from the beginning to have people who would serve him and love him and be like him. And he chose us, moreover, in Christ. You remember that Christ was crucified even before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8. That's to say he was crucified in God's plan, not literally, of course. And Jesus was indeed in the mind of God from the very beginning. From the start, God chose in his intention a Savior who would redeem the world from their sins. And the Christians are foreseen also in God's plan. Jesus is foreseen as the Savior, and the Christians are likewise foreknown. In the first chapter of First Peter, we find that Christians are foreknown according to the will of God. And in verse 20 of First Peter 1, Jesus the Messiah himself is foreknown from the beginning of the world. You see, in Jewish thinking, all the great personalities and events which are destined to occur in God's plan exist in the mind of God, in his intention from the very beginning before the foundation of the world. And in verse 5, Paul goes on to say to the Ephesians, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. All of this, in other words, was predestined by God in the sense that he designed that he should have sons who would love him, who would be holy like him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single individual as an individual was predestined, but rather that God in his great plan knew that some would respond to his message, and in that sense, God foreknew and foresaw, predestined his great salvation plan as it worked to produce immortal beings for his kingdom. Verse 6 says that all of this is to the praise of the glory of God's grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. That's to say, in union with Christ. 
as followers of Christ, as those who respond to his gospel message of the kingdom. The prominent word in this verse 6, of course, is the grace of God, and that reminds me immediately of Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, where Paul said that he'd been preaching the gospel or good news of the grace of God, and in the next verse he defined what that gospel of the grace of God was. It was the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Acts 20, verses 24 and 25. I have to point out then that there's absolutely no difference between the gospel of the grace of God and the gospel of the kingdom. These are interchangeable terms having to do with the one and only gospel, the one and only gospel which saves everyone, Jew and Gentile, according to the scriptures. If you're interested in that subject of defining the gospel according to the Bible, then please request from us a free article entitled The Christian Gospel in the New Testament. It may be that you're interested in pursuing the subject of exactly who Jesus is in relation to the Father, who is the God of the Bible, and who is Jesus. We have a booklet we'd like to offer you entitled Who is Jesus? Also a book on the kingdom of God. I've authored that one myself. It's called The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. We'd like to send that to you also for your personal Bible study at home. It comes with a study book, and you can even fill in answers to questions and submit them to the college if you wish, and we will be glad to correct and modify and answer any questions you may have. We would invite you also to request from us a tape of the program you've been listening to or other programs in this series. We'll send them to you for your personal Bible study at home. Meanwhile, join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.